This is a relay project. The discourse starts right now with Cheryl Oates and Erica Baroudis. Welcome to The Discourse. On today's show, we're digging into Premier Danielle Smith's parental rights policies. The Premier announced the new policies in a produced video on X last week, and the next day, she held a press conference. For children who identify as transgender, I want you to also know that these policies are being implemented in order to protect the choices you have regarding altering your physical body until after you've grown mature enough to make such choices safely and with a full understanding of what that means for the rest of your life. These policies include a prohibition on gender reassignment surgeries for minors aged 17 and under. For children aged 15 and under, puberty blockers and hormone therapies for the purpose of gender reassignment will also not be permitted, with the exception of those who've already commenced their treatment at this, at this time. For minors aged 16 and 17 who wish to start hormone therapies for gender reassignment purposes, this will be permitted with parent, parental physician and psychologist approval and consent. Children aged 15 and under will require parental notification and consent before their name or pronouns are changed in school. For minors aged 16 and 17, parental consent won't be required for this, but parents will be, have to be notified. In rare circumstances, when tra- transgender children experience an abusive parent, there are, of course, child protection laws that will be enforced. And lastly, We are implementing policies to protect fairness and safety in women's and girls' sports. We will work with sporting organizations to ensure that women and girls have a choice to participate in competitive sport without having to compete against biologically stronger transgender women athletes, while also ensuring that we work with those same organizations to expand co-ed and gender-neutral categories so that every uh, transgender athlete can meaningfully participate in the sports that they love. The announcement has been controversial and has sparked debate from both sides, as well as responses from a range of medical professionals and other experts. This is a topic that carries a lot of emotion. And today we hope that we can have a fact-based conversation about what the government is proposing and what its implications are. I know that Cheryl and I have spent the weekend sharing articles back and forth, um, doing a lot of reading, listening, and speaking with individuals on both sides of this conversation. And that we're both looking for a solution that demonstrates love and compassion of those involved and impacted. In order to do that, we need an expert. Today, Dr. Joe Raish has agreed to join us on the program. Dr. Raish is a Calgary-based psychiatrist specializing in work with transgender youth and adults, and he's helped build gender clinics at the Foothills Medical Center, as well as Alberta's Children's Hospital, and operates his own clinical practice. Dr. Raish, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for, uh, for having me. Of course. I think to open up today, just maybe a little bit about the work that you do uh, and any initial thoughts on the policies that have been rolled out by the government of Alberta. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a a, a full-time psychiatrist working almost exclusively with um, trans youth, uh, families and adults. So that's the entirety of my practice. Um, Mostly our uh, support is around helping folks navigate the more medical or surgical aspects of their transition goals. So um, our clinics, you know, certainly don't aim to see everyone because because not everybody has that as part of their um, their own personal goal. But those who are interested, uh, absolutely, we would be involved in in supporting um, them kind of reach their healthcare needs. So 
the yeah the, the announcement from from last week from government I, I think caught a lot of healthcare providers and educators uh, off guard. Um, you know, especially um, the, the the length that uh, some of the restrictions on gender affirming care, especially with youth, and, and putting in sort of uh, arbitrary kind of age uh, restrictions, it was it was it was concerning. And, and I think there's been a lot of um, kind of vocal uh, feedback uh, and um, you know statements released by you know the um, Alberta Medical Association section of pediatrics section of child and adolescent psychiatry the Alberta Psychiatric Association all in the last week you know releasing position statements that these proposed policies really don't align with best practice with uh, evidence-based care whatsoever or any international consensus guidelines so it, it, yeah it was, it was it was a shock it's very alarming and um yeah i'm happy to be here today to talk about that and i do want to come back um to what you said about some of the alignment with our our current form of of how we we enter into this space um but one thing i wanted to bring uh and i think we kind of blanketed the the announcement can i maybe get you to comment because i haven't seen some of the the other policies be in introduced or even by, you know, opposition leaders, um, that the government announced that they would bring in medical professionals to Alberta. That is part of this this policy um, to specialize in the, the pre and post. I just want to read it so I don't get it wrong. But post-operative uh, transgender care for adults in Alberta. And further to that, would develop a, a private registry of medical professionals who specialize in this field. Uh, can you maybe comment on that part of the policy and, you know, where you think that is also? Headed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I, I think um, out of everything that was kind of announced, that you know maybe was the one item where there's perhaps a little bit of a of a silver lining. Um, in particular, if, if the if the province is sincere and um, you know committed to improving access to care for trans um, Albertans, that having surgical specialty um, and expertise exists in our province. Uh, you know, would be a great step in the right direction. Um, so I, I don't think you're going to find much, you know, opposition to to that. I think where some of the difficulty might arise is, you know, on one hand, you have a, a policy announcement that's saying, hey, we want to recruit somebody, we want somebody to provide this uh, service in province, in-house, and at the same time, we're also going to simultaneously enact a bunch of kind of restrictive um, uh, other policies, right? So I, I think those clinicians, those surgeons working in this area uh, want to be in an environment, they want to be in a, in a, in a setting where they're going to feel supported, where there's a good network of colleagues and that the, the, the sort of landscape of providing gender affirming care um, is, 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 is more holistic. So it, it was a little um, interesting to kind of hear these policies r- released in, in that way. Um, the other thing is, is you know, th- this has been something that those of us working in this area have been advocating government for years about improving uh, wait times for surgery, improving access to surgery, um, potentially having a surgical center here in our province of, you know, north of four million uh, people. Um, and and time and time again, when, when these proposals have made their way to government, they, they've either been rejected or, or not even really considered. So it's also a little ironic now that um, you know, that this is kind of coming to the light. So, so I, I hope government really is sincere in their desire to kind of pursue that. Um, and, and you know, that could be, could be a helpful uh, initiative as well to add. 
Yeah. And so I think it's unfortunate, and this is obviously not directed to you, but the AMA has come out saying a lot of um, negativity against the policies and have yet to recognize what you did is a step in the right direction on on some of the other things that maybe didn't make the the media um, in the same way that some of the, as you said, uh, age, the changes of age uh, for for hormones and and post-op. I do want to ask you, though, because you talked about the universal practice. Um, We've seen a lot of changes recently uh, coming out of the UK, out of Sweden, out of Finland, where they did go by gender-affirming care and now are shifting towards exploratory care. So can you maybe walk us through, like, how we got to gender-affirming care in Alberta and Canada? And, you know, if we are also looking at that exploratory care model as we learn from in countries that are farther down this this journey than we are. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to shed a little bit of insight, uh, you know, on that, Eric. And obviously, I'm a, I'm a practitioner uh, in Canada, so I, I certainly keep, um, uh, you know, abreast of some of the changes going on internationally, but but I recognize I do not work in those jurisdictions and, and that there's a lot of uh, other kind of moving pieces to um, why some of those changes might be happening. But before I do, I really do want to um, clearly emphasize the difference between gender affirming care and what sometimes gets confused as a more in, purely informed consent model of care. Um, so gender affirming care for us here in Alberta um, is is about affirming someone's identity, uh, their, their lived experience. But it, it's not just about, um, you know, doing anything that somebody wants, right? Like we, we still have standards that we follow. We still have good practice, good medicine, where we're wanting to support, in this case, if it's a youth or adult, in reaching their goals in a, in a way that's safe, that's that's healthy, and that's conducive for long-term uh, success and, and hopefully, you know, sort of a, a positive outcome, while at the same time minimizing the risk of harm by, by doing nothing. Uh, so it's always a, a delicate balance that's that's an individual decision based on the person and the family, you know, sitting in front of us at, at any you know given day of the week. Whereas informed consent very much is, you know, no, kind of a no questions asked. I'm going to show up. I'm going to sign some paperwork and I'm going to get my prescription for hormones or I'm going to get, you know, a, a referral for this or, or something else. Right. There are jurisdictions um, in, in the world that do. Um, you know, have that kind of model of care. And that model of care really was born out of necessity in some of those places because of how long wait lists were, the the level of institutional gatekeeping uh, to access proper gender-affirming care were that, um, you know, these these life-saving measures almost as a harm reduction uh, strategy needed to exist. And, And my hope is that in Canada, at least, we've we've struck a good balance between providing good evidence-based care that's supported by international standards um, that, that you know, it isn't necessarily uh, a pure informed consent, um, you know, I'm going to sign, you know, my life away and, and whatever happens, happens. So, so I, I hope that that clarification and distinction uh, is, is useful. Uh, because it really, it really is, you know, sort of different. So if we, if we look though, to your other kind of second part to that question of what's happening internationally, why we're seeing you know a shift back so so i think there's a couple factors in in why that might be the case uh first i, th- I think there have been a number of high profile um you know cases published in in media 
um, particular social media where individuals who have navigated their transition have come to express some some degree of complications, some degree of, of regret, and perhaps even may retransition and now identify as a cisgender. Um, and, and so these get you know amplified, even though they're not the, the majority, they're not even close to being the vast majority of cases of, of youth and, and adults that we work with and see, but, but their stories are nonetheless powerful. And I think for someone who maybe isn't overly familiar with what gender affirming care entails, what it looks like, might hear this and, and, and be you know, sort of shocked and, oh my goodness, like I can't believe that that happened. I can't believe that that would even be allowed to happen. And so it, it really um, plays into this emotional argument around we need to be you know, protecting youth, we need to be protecting patients, uh, we need to prevent any and all possible outcomes where somebody may regret something, right? And, and I, I, think, I think a lot of the legislative changes internationally that are um, you know being being attempted or being tried really are coming from that place and so uh, you know to use the UK for for maybe a more specific example you know historically there was one clinic in the whole you know uh, the whole UK that every youth had to go through they had you know years long wait lists and obviously you know understaffed underfunded it really created a, a, a dynamic where patients maybe weren't actually getting the best possible care because because they couldn't actually offer that. And instead, when they looked to kind of review things, they said, well, let's, you know, the, the one thing that also I think is a bit of a mis, um, uh, kind of misnomer is, is this idea that, you know, these, these countries are banning care or they're restricting care. Well, I think depending on your, your perspective, maybe there's a, an angle of truth to that, but I think a more um, a more accurate view would be say that they're actually looking at supporting and bolstering care, meaning that that it's not just going to be one centralized place, that, that care is going to be um, decoupled from one sole clinic, that it's going to be looking at integrating gender-affirming care into the community, into multiple clinics. It's also going to be um, ensuring that there are additional medical and mental health supports available for, for youth and adults who are transitioning. And, and that the third kind of layer is that there's going to be perhaps a research component, that these outcomes, these, these individuals are going to be followed a little bit more closely and, and rigorously, right? And I don't think anyone's um, saying that that necessarily is a bad thing, but it, but it's a little disingenuous when that gets presented as, oh, they're, you know, they're outright banning care and therefore you know, what Alberta has recently suggested with our government, that somehow that makes sense or that's in alignment with the actual standards that, that exist working with this population. There's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of fear around policies and advocates on both sides of this issue. And a lot of it comes from the not knowing and the not understanding and a, and a lack of information because in the grand scheme of things, it is a smaller portion of the population that is experiencing gender dysphoria and is transitioning. And so not everyone has exposure to it. And there is this sort of narrative out there that, uh, you know, there could be a kid out there, a young kid who just comes to school one day and decides that they're not a girl anymore, they're a boy. And then somehow they just get plucked up and are now on hormones or, or moving into a system that will offer them surgery. And in reality, the process that they go through is so much more complex. And as it stands until this announcement, we rely on the expertise from professionals like yourself to sort of guide those individuals through the system. Could you offer just sort of a glimpse at what that looks like for those that, you know, are worried about their kids entering school and and, and maybe questioning their identity and what those steps look like for them? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you do bring up a good uh, point, Cheryl, that, that this is not something that 
you know, happens uh, spur of the moment. It, 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 these are not medical decisions that occur lightly or without consultation with parents or, or families. And that really the um, the, the process of, of transitioning, if you look on average, it takes roughly seven years kind of start to finish. So th- th- this is a, a long, you know, journey where it's not just, you know, a snapshot in time and, you know, we're going to kind of knee jerk react to something. Often the youth that we see have been struggling with feelings of gender dysphoria for, for many years. Their parents are aware, their parents are, are supportive, and, and they're wanting to ensure that their child doesn't suffer or struggle anymore um, with needing to, for example, go through uh, a, a puberty that does not align with with their gender identity, or, or perhaps um, need to uh, register in in school or or apply for a job with 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 a name um, or or you know gender expression that again doesn't align with with who that youth um, actually are. So. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a long process. Um, as a you know example for our clinic, you know we uh, you know currently have um, wait lists that are anywhere from one to two years, and then this this is pretty typical across Canada in, in some of the research uh, studies that I've been part of. And, and and we look at the pathway to care that youth need to actually follow. You know, usually there's interactions with their family physician, um, community mental health providers like psychologists well before they even make it to a gender clinic or, or a gender affirming provider. And even when they actually do get there, there's um, you know multidisciplinary assessments, there's longitudinal support provided. And each decision along the way is approached independently and with making sure everyone is on board, making sure that it's the most appropriate course of action for that youth and, and giving youth time and space to you know let let things sort of um, kind of crystallize almost, if you will. And and just, uh, sorry, Erica, no, go ahead. I'll just ask one more and then turn it back over to you. In your experience, because this is, you know, at least from advocacy groups who have been speaking out against these policies, the biggest reason is the risk that these individuals or these youth face should they not receive medical care or medical intervention or uh, medical supports. In your experience, what is the risk? I would say the risk is um, is, is significant. And based on the balance of that risk, the risk of doing nothing, um, the vast majority of cases far outweighs the risk of, you know, whatever small risk of, um, you know, maybe negative outcome that that gets sort of amplified in 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 in, in media or amplified by some of these personal narratives or, or stories. And so it's always it's always that question mark of you know doing nothing is not neutral. Um, th- this is a conversation that any any physician is going to have with their patient about any intervention. You know, here's the risk of us doing what I'm talking about, and here's the risk of we don't do anything at all. And and that that's for patients and families. Uh, to decide for themselves what um, you know, what level of of risk, what course of action aligns with their goals, and and what is you know what is supported by their their healthcare team. I think I think in particular when we're speaking about trans youth, though, the the risk um, of um, you know mental health challenges is is certainly you know quite high. Uh, we know that. Uh, rates of depression, anxiety, uh, suicidal thinking, suicide attempts is is already higher at a baseline in, in the 2SLGBTQ um, youth population, but, you know, even higher when those youth do not have supportive parents, 
teachers, you know, whoever, it's a, a community to support them. So that that risk certainly can get amplified. We also know that there's other um, other kind of social determinants uh, based risks. So in terms of um, you know under, being under housed, uh, homeless, um, uh, you know. Uh, ch- uh, challenges with substances, right? All, all of the, you know, high, high risk sexual behaviors, right? This, this also can be something that that occurs. Um, so, so yeah, we we definitely take that balance of risk uh, quite seriously, and um, you know, it, it's it's sort of a no brainer at the end of the day when you when you compare, you know, n- nothing is going to be a hundred percent, nothing is going to be perfect, but when you compare both of those potential outcomes. Um, especially when you're talking about an intervention like pubertal suppression that is really for all intents and purposes 100% reversible, um, it, it becomes even even more clear that that, that is a, a, can be potentially a very life-saving and a very affirming uh, intervention. I want to jump in on uh, one of the things that you, you just said of li- life-saving. First off, um, I don't think that the either either side of this is act- looking for no action. I think that there is <clears throat> action to work towards how we can support these individuals in that transition and what timeline that looks like. Um, so I think it's just how we're getting there that maybe is the difference from people that support the policies that people that don't. But in no means is this government not taking action to address such a critical uh, topic right now. But I want to come back to what you said about uh, the life saving. So and I'm happy if you want to ascend and I will post it um, <clears throat> after on any articles like I have seen no scientific data that has actually said that these claim to be a life saving care. And what I mean by that is on the correlation between mental health, um, if you're depressed, if you have ADHD and other terms like that, the hormone therapy or other forms of of transition uh, are directly correlated. So I want to get your thoughts on that because I've also looked at the risks of taking hormone blockers and mental health is there. Um, I have a list. There's mental health, osteoporosis, mood disorder, seizures, cognitive impairment, um, and and also when combined with cross-sex hormones, there's um, questions of, of being sterile. So when we're looking at the risks on both sides, can you maybe talk about, I, I think both sides have risks and, and maybe I could get you to expand on that because, um, you know, you did reference life-saving care and I just want to uh, make sure I understand what you said. And again, if you have documentation s- supporting that, by all means, pass to me as I'm going to share with you an Oxford University uh, study that talks about exactly why the UK is shifting and it's not because of of how that clinic operated. Yeah, and I, I recognize there, there likely are multifactorial reasons for some of those policy decisions in in other countries. Um, but yeah, I mean to answer your question, there, Eric, I think I think the life savingness of those interventions. Um, I mean, the most kind of concrete example, of course, is in the reduction of suicidal thinking and suicide attempts, and there is very clear uh, Canadian data actually to to support that. Uh, gender affirming care, in fact, does lower that. So, I mean, I'm, and I'm happy to share that with you, uh, of course, uh, you know, off off air here. Um, but, but I, but I think that's that's probably one of the most salient kind of high level uh, risk reduction strategies that we know um, does does exist. And and I think when we say life saving, um, I'm I'm using that phrasing to describe um, not only promoting the the longevity of, of someone's life but but the quality of their life too and we, we know that um, access to gender affirming care including puberty blockers hormone therapy surgeries um, without a doubt does improve 
mental health outcomes. Now, you, you may find, you know, an odd study here or there that says, well, the evidence is inconclusive or, um, but, but, but really that the, those studies are, are basically looking for a, a holy grail of, you know, was this a, um, you know, double blind randomized controlled trial um, looking at the effects of puberty blockers or hormones. And, and that, you know, that just it doesn't exist. And, and it's not really ethical for that to uh, exist in this particular line of care. There's many fields in medicine that do not rely on um, double blind randomized control data uh, that are still best practice, that are still supported by, you know, international guidelines and um, kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of practice standards. So, so, so there is certainly a risk um, of, of uh, you know, not doing something and a risk of doing something. And to your question about the risk of um, puberty blockers themselves, uh, I, I don't think anyone is saying that they are without risk. Um, I, what, I'm, what I am saying is they are um, entirely uh, reversible uh, so to, you know, the government's point of, you know, these policies are being being enacted to ensure and prevent youth from making irreversible decisions that are going to impact things down the road. Uh, but then banning puberty blockers beyond a certain age, uh, like to, to me, that directly conflicts with that stated objective and goal um, that we would want to preserve access to the most reversible interventions uh, before moving on to something else. And so the risk of harm here is setting an arbitrary age cutoff where the majority of people are already gonna already have gone through puberty and then say, oh, now you can have access to puberty blockers, but we, you know, you've already, you know, you're 95% of the way through, that there's tremendous risk uh, of that um, and and risk of, well, now, now we've set somebody on a path that maybe they actually need to pursue gender affirming surgery um, more likely, or maybe they need, maybe they're more desiring to pursue gender affirming hormone care because their body's shifted in a way that's not affirming or not aligned with them. So there's, there's, there's risk to that as well. The actual um, risk of puberty blockers themselves. So these are medications that, you know, we're talking about in the context of, of gender affirming care. These, these, these actually get used for a number of things uh, across medicine, um, you know, treatment of prostate cancers and other, other malignancies, endometriosis, uh, PMDD, uh, precocious puberty, uh, and, and other certain conditions to suppress, uh, you know, sex drive. So um, to, to, you know, highlight the, the, you know, the laundry list of potential side effects, sure, those are there, but these are not things that we commonly see uh, in, in this population uh, because we're using them for uh, a short amount of time, usually no more than two or three years. Uh, and then we allow youth to kind of go through, um, you know, whatever puberty is, is necessary for them. So we don't, we don't, we don't minimize the risk. We, we, you know, present the, the risk of, of some of those health changes in particular osteoporosis, um, you know, to youth and families. And, and we have strategies to mitigate that risk from, uh, from, you know, actually affecting their health in, in a negative way or in, in a long-term uh, consequence kind of way. And I, I appreciate, and I'm sure I promise I'll throw it back to you, but I appreciate, I just want to follow up on that because, um, you know, you're showing from your expert opinion. I know Cheryl and I have been sharing articles and information and talking to to individuals that are on on the pro and and against side of these policies. Um, you talk about like the era or the reversibility. Um, the one thing that was brought to my attention by some some parents uh, that are concerned for their children if they enter into this and have explored it, um, and I, I recognize it's not an overnight thing that happens. Um, 
and I know, like, and they're, I know they're off, uh, off label prescriptions, as you mentioned. Um, I guess my question is around like how, how, when they're going into this process, can you ensure that like they're, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, there's not enough studies on the long-term impacts and everything I've seen is three and five years or um, short-term puberty blockers. But I guess I came across uh, the the class action suit in the U.S. Um, for Luberin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm not an expert, um, but but that's on some of the impacts, the the longer term effects that these had on individuals. And I recognize that's not in Canada. So maybe if you can talk about um, how the FDA's regulations and Canadians differ to to bring some peace of mind to individuals seeing those types of cases, but also how we're ensuring that. Um, like we're not heading down a road where the concern is that we don't have enough information. We don't have enough studies. We don't have enough um, evidence on the long-term impacts. And that was something that was consistently brought to me over the last week uh, when we said that we were going to be talking about that. So maybe just shedding some light on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I I think, um, again, at the end of the day, um, those sentiments, I think, are reflected by parents and um, families that that we're working with on on a regular basis. They they want what's best for their child, um, and they want reassurance that you know their child is going to be happy and healthy. Um, and so we we present to them the the best available evidence at that time. And, and yeah, we we don't know um, the answers of you know someone who uh, is on. Uh, Lupron or Lupralide, um, you know, during puberty, you know, what's going to happen 40 years from now, right? We, that 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 study is it doesn't exist, and nor probably will it ever exist, because that's that's not how medicine necessarily works. There's a lot of good observational data and a lot of robust um, studies um, from from that perspective that do support the the benefits of these medications, and so we we have to weigh that with um, a small. Uh, percentage of, of risk of you know there is there are some unknowns um, and so yes there there are you know um, class action lawsuits in the U.S. Um, I think you can find one for you know most medications that 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 are out or have been released right so um, uh, Luprolide is perhaps no different um, but we 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 really try to present things um, as um, you know, as, as fulsomely as possible, saying we don't know all the answers. We're, we're never going to know 100% of the answers, but we have a pretty good idea, a good enough idea of here are the beneficial things that we would expect to happen. Here are the small risks that, you know, are are known and, and perhaps even the smaller risk of unknown. And let families and parents decide for themselves, um, you know, what what actually makes the most sense. And so, you know, from a, a parental rights sort of lens um, and, and a lens that encourages uh, patient and family agency and autonomy, allowing them to be the decision makers in their healthcare, as opposed to government saying yay or nay, or, or government involving themselves in the medical records or, or, or patient care. Um, to, to me, that that's really the, um, you know, the the most kind of jarring aspects of of these proposed policies. I know your time is limited and we've talked about the long wait list and I know you're heading off to uh, make your way through that after we're done here. So just wrapping up with one question, which is sort of about the broader implications of what the government has announced. Medicine in Alberta, just like law, is is policed, is self-governed. 
So the college sets the, the standards because we have all agreed as a society that experts in medicine are best positioned to set the standards of care and, and set professional standards as well. What we're seeing here is the government stepping into that and saying, now we will come between what the AMA, AMA has called a sacrosanct relationship between the patient and the doctor, and in some cases their parent, and decided what doctors can and cannot do. Um, just before we let you go here, your thoughts on what that overstep means uh, in Alberta and what it could lead to down the road. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would echo a lot of the um, concerns and statements from my colleagues and our, our, our respective professional associations and regulatory bodies that um, that there are a number of, you know, ethical um, guiding principles in, in healthcare and and patient autonomy is is one of them um and that anytime you know government is trying to insert itself into the patient physician relationship uh and and sort of dictate what can and can't be done it it is worrisome and the the concern here um especially uh especially if government um is not consulting uh, with with experts is not consulting with the profession and, and just sort of rolling out these policies that they feel are are you know sort of good faith and in the best interest with, without actually really knowing that you know that that not only creates a lot of potential harm but it also sets some uh, potential precedent to you know what what's the next area of medicine or healthcare that you know gov government will feel empowered to insert itself into um, you know what's the next um, area where they're going to dictate when an intervention, when a medication can be prescribed versus when it can't, you know, like, and, and once those doors open to, to me, that can be a bit of a, a slippery slope. Um, so, you know, our, our, our hope is, is hopefully government is, is willing and, and, and um, expressing interest in consulting with, with experts because that hasn't happened at all to date. Um, so, again, another reason why, why these announcements were so shocking because, you know, it, it really flies in the face of the established guidelines that do exist in this area. Um, but, yeah, really, really, really worrisome, I think, for, for any any healthcare providers to, um, you know, have this, you know, even even if the door is just open a, a smidge, right, it's uh, it's it's a little scary. Uh, Dr. Raish, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks for lending your voice and your expertise to what is a very, very complex topic. So we really appreciate you being here. My, my pleasure. Thank you both to uh, you, Cheryl and Erica. <laughs> Well, I think it was great to have Dr. Raish on. Um, and I want to just start off by saying something that he was talking about is the consultation, which I think is going to be critical for the government uh, between now and when the policies would be introduced as legislation in the fall. Uh, so still lots to see on how the government is going to navigate this. But I think it's important for our listeners to also see, um, you know, one of the, the video that you mentioned, Cheryl, on X earlier and how she approached this. Um, we're going to flip to a clip right now on uh, not just the policies, but her, her empathy and tone towards this topic. As Premier of this province, I want every Albertan that identifies as transgender to know I care deeply about you and I accept you as you are. As long as I lead this province, I will ensure you are supported and your rights are protected. And she goes on to throughout after she's listed um, the policies that I know we're going to go kind of one by one and dig through that. Um, 
And it is to those children and teens, I want to say just how much we love you and support you in becoming the person you want to be. You have um, to feel, you don't have, never have to feel alone or isolated. It goes on for a couple more sentences. Um, but I think the point is, is that what I've seen from the anti-policy um, argument is that this is a anti-trans, you know, trans-hating type of policy. But when you have the premier um, coming, and I don't believe that this is ideological policy, I think this is, you know, one of those very difficult policies that's timely, and she so happens to be the premier of the province, coming forward and making a very tough decision um, and looking out, as she said, for protecting and the safety of children going through this. I absolutely and completely disagree. I think that walking out a video, a pre-produced video, I don't like her tone is great. Her the look on her face is practiced and she has she has demonstrated many times that she has the ability to say anything while looking incredibly professional. But it is absolutely duplicitous to go, come out and offer we love you, we stand with you, we support you and we plan to bring in these policies that will ultimately hurt you and ignore advice from the medical community to do all of that at once. If I was a member of this community, I would be outraged and I'm outraged on their behalf because it doesn't matter how kindly she said it or how empathetic her tone was. It's dangerous and it will hurt people. And I will say I want to I want to address that on two points. First off, during the, the questions afterwards, the premier was asked about a personal experience and a family member um, that that has, you know, is going through um gender identity and I'm not sure any status uh, and it's not for me to to speak on but has someone in her family that is experiencing and, and go navigating this so what she was talking about and I I will say I think that one was very authentic if you're going to criticize a pre-recorded speech but when asked about that and the importance of family and the the what she shared in her experience and that family members was the unknown the lack of evidence um, she shared the you know the long-term impacts and that ultimately um, you know children are children and you're, there's guardians for a reason was what she she kind of uh, what she was talking about of the risks on the other side and why these policies were important for the government to put in place. And like every single person's story is authentic and matters. And I take nothing away from that person's experience or the fact that they chose to share it um, with Premier Smith. But I don't believe that any premier anywhere should be bringing in policy based on one conversation with one person of any community. And so I think that person's voice really matters and I think their experience matters. But in cases like this, we need to be relying on the experts and the medical uh, professionals and the evidence that exists about how to treat patients, not on one-off conversations, no matter how close we are with the person who's offering their experience. And, and I can, I, I completely respect that. And, and like I said, we can all only bring our own lens and experience. And, you know, for, for folks like you and I, like we've been spending the time to have those conversations and understand. Um, I think that that for me is the, the, biggest takeaway is how much I've actually learned about the from the, the community that's uh, pro and and anti uh, of these government policies. Um, I, I do want to I want to call you out, though, a little bit like there is equal science on the 
you know, on the side, this is a science-based approach from a different part of science. And so I find it interesting because the NDP has always been like pro-science, pro-science, pro-science. Um, and I completely agree with that. However, this is something where you're ignoring a significant portion of the science that talks about the impacts of potentially hormone blockers. The We don't have evidence that's um, cited saying we have no, no, nothing against or no risk associated with this. It To me, what I've heard from a lot of folks is their concern that we don't have the confidence in what is being said. And I'll also say for the record, like I don't believe every family physician is the expert in this. I believe there's individuals that are experts within this field, like the doctor we had on that can speak directly to this. But I think we're blanketing what an expert is. And I would also argue that parents are experts in in raising their children and in what is in the best interest and that they love their children. So those are also a very big stakeholder group of experts. But no one this policy is not asking anyone not to love their children. It's not saying that parents don't know their children best. But then how can you what say that we're anti-trans? It's not saying that either. Because this That's an interpretation, policy, which is this, the same okay, thing. This policy, if a parent and a, a medical professional and a youth all agree this is the best course of action for them, the government has still blocked it. So that doesn't do that doesn't do anything for parental rights. In fact, that take that takes parental rights away. Those parents who say, "I love my child, I know what's best for my child, and this route of medical intervention is what's best for my child," the government has said, "No, no, no. We know better than doctors. But same, we know better than parents, and we've decided this is not going to proceed." At the that age is of not, that's taking rights away from everybody. But at 15, that's not taking your rights away at 18, which, as the doctor said, is not something that um, like we are looking at that 18 year old. That is the age of maturity. I think where the government's trying to go and be proactive versus reactive is on um, the the opportunity that a doctor or a physician currently has to deem an individual maturity of age, meaning that they don't have to be a certain age. And so what I think where some folks or where the government's trying to put safeguards to reassure parents is that if you start this two, three year journey that the doctor's talking about, that could start at 11. And then you add it up and that I don't think we, we like we may disagree, but I don't think an 11 year old has the same ability to make those tough decisions that they would at 20, at 30. But, but with respect, Erica, who cares what you think? Like we have experts in all of these fields. We just had a psychiatrist on and their job is for when patients come forward, no matter what age they are to work with them on a medical level, on a psychiatric level, to work them through the process and decide what what intervention is appropriate at what time. So for anyone on the outside, parent or otherwise, to look at someone else's situation and say, I don't think you're ready to make that decision. Like, who cares what you think? This is why we have okay, experts. Okay, but what about the experts that don't feel they have a voice and can't say something because they don't agree with gender affirming care. And right now we default to that. So as a physician or as a psychologist or as anyone else that has to operate under the current rules, they also are getting silenced and there isn't an opportunity for them to share their voice. The alternative, if they do, is the fear of losing their license, of being deemed unethical, their livelihood. So I do think that, yes, there's bodies that operate, but are they truly doing the the, the due diligence in making sure that those experts that we're talking about 
can have that conversation because right now like my phone rang off the hook on people that didn't feel like they could have a voice because of the consequence there was people that couldn't come on our show or have asked to go on background and I'm not a journalist, but I appreciate their <laughs> their approach. Um, had very serious conversations, but I said, I don't want my story shared. I don't want this because I'm so scared that I will lose my license for having this opinion. And so I don't think that you can say that all experts feel this same way. But is that person who's saying they don't want to speak out, are they an expert in gender affirming care yes. or gender dysphoria? And, a, and an individual that has gone through transition and detransitioned as well. Like I, I'm not typing it to one person. I've talked to numerous. And like I'm saying is I, I, I don't I can't personally relate. So I tried to get as prepared for this as possible. And these were the concerns that were shared with me. So I don't think the system's perfect. I don't think the AMA putting a blanket statement is speaking for all of their members. They're speaking for the executive. And, you know, pediatrics, like the AMA put a letter out. I'm sorry, but not all pediatricians have this expertise. And so I completely agree with you that who should be at that table are the actual experts that understand this this type of topic and situation because I think we're all working towards what is in the best interest of those children and we want to protect them and love them and make them feel okay as they go through this journey and I think that right now how the medical profession is approaching it there's a lot of criticism or lack of trust that that's speaking for all the experts. And I'm sure there will always be outliers. I mean, we just heard from the doctor, you'll never find anything that's 100% conclusive. And part of that is because it's just not ethical to do those kind of studies, um, you know, the gold standard of studies. But I like, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure there are outliers in everything. But I mean, if we are not trusting the expert voices in Alberta, in this case, not even consulting them, like, I don't know how we make an informed policy going forward. And, and I would much rather hear even from experts who oppose the policy than have the government be the one to step in without proper consultation and make a sweeping plan with massive implications like this one. And I think as we go forward with these consult, uh, consultations, as we talked about, it's really important to have all those voices at the table. Another group that I have not seen or heard from, and by all means, I'm happy to to see that, but are those individuals that... Um, also may, may not feel they have a voice and they need to be at the table. Those individuals that detransitioned or those people that regret their decision or those that felt that there was, you know, some gaps in the system when they were going through this and we can learn from those situations. But to your point, I do think more consultation needs to happen. I feel like we say that on a lot of things that consultation is always best, but I do think that the experts need to be at the table. And I think that includes individuals with their experience and it needs to be a safe space where they're not going to lose their license and they're not going to hurt their brand and reputation to be exiled by another community because they're sharing their story and their experience. Totally. And, and I would like to move to the politics of this, yep. but I just wanted to say one more thing because absolutely, let's hear from the full spectrum of voices, mm -hmm. which we've heard and you can see in, in even the studies that were shared with you, is a very small portion of the people who are participating in the studies and have transitioned, have actually regretted their their decisions or retransitioned back to the gender that they were born with. And I think those 
those voices and those stories are very important and we should hear from them. But let's remember that those on the other side, those who are at risk because they haven't received care or they won't receive care or care has been withheld from them because of policies like this, many of them will not be able to share their experiences because they will have hurt themselves, because they will have harmed themselves, because they won't be with us to share those stories. And I think that's important to remember when you think about the things that Dr. Raish said, the the um, risks of this kind of intervention, the risk of doing nothing is, is it just far outweighs it. And so just keeping in mind that so many of those people who haven't received care won't be able to share their experiences. Yeah, and, and I know we wanna, I wanna move on. I'm sure we could keep talking about that specific side. Um, maybe coming to why the UCP did this. Um, I've asked myself that question because again, it's not ideological. It's a very, very, like you said, emotional, um, divisive topic. Even in polling, you see mostly people that support the policies or don't support the policies. There isn't even a huge number of like, I kind of support or I kind of don't. It's it's very, you know, black or white on, on this topic. And so why? And I think it's because what we're seeing around the world, we saw it from other provinces, Saskatchewan and New Brunswick, and I know that there's there's obviously difference of what Alberta did, but we're seeing these changes that I talked about in UK, Sweden, Finland that are reversing some of their practices. And so I think the government was doing this in a proactive way um, to try and address address an issue, not in a reactive way that uh, I've seen how the, the NDP has has really politicize this. Um, but let's just, can I just, summar, can I just summarize what you just said? The government is trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. It does like exist that. around the world. They're trying to get in front of it as opposed to waiting till we're at a place where we do have science. We do have stuff that's backing up what they're doing. And we do have kids going into sport that are concerned. We do see teachers cha- like having conversations without parental consent in classrooms. It's happening. We've talked there's about no this. data. There's no data to to uh, suggest that the government has to solve a problem. I mean, we but that's saw what government's Premier job Smith. is. It's that there is a problem. No, you solve it. Gover- You're saying no, there's, there's a problem. There's no problem. There's no problem here. The government, like Premier Smith, was met with Vashi Capellas earlier this week, who put her on the spot and said, "Are you solving? Are you worried about what's happening, or are you worrying about what could happen?" And she said explicitly, "I'm worried about what could happen." Like, we're not asking governments to come in and imagine problems for us to solve. There are so many problems that are much bigger in Alberta right now than this one. I would like to see the government keep their promise and make a tax cut. I would like to, go to see the government fix the healthcare system. This is nowhere near the top of my list for priorities in Alberta, and certainly not even near the top of my list in terms of things they could do in the education system. So I don't understand why now and what the, the impetus is to make such a giant leap on an incredibly divisive topic. I don't disagree that it's divisive. I think that similar to conversations around abortion, conversations around gay marriage, conversations around homosexuality, having those types of conversations because they're happening in your society, there's never a right time and it's never easy for a politician or anyone to address. But sometimes there's the right time because you need to start having those conversations. And when parents were coming home, you know, looking at what was happening to uh, under, you know, under their nose that they didn't know about their children and they wanted to love and support them. That's, I think, where this is coming from, is that there's lots of individuals that disagree what was currently happening. And as a government, they want to get in front of it. Now, you but can I'll criticize- wait to see examples, because this is what happened in Saskatchewan, too. If we're talking specifically about pronoun notification, the, the government was put on the spot and said, 
tell us like where are these people where are these parents like where is the problem and they came up with nothing so like we can imagine a problem for sure and and we can imagine a villain but in this case i've seen not one example of anyone saying this policy needs to be introduced um i would probably argue against that i would say um we have teenagers or preteens in our house we see what there's they're being told and said in school i'm not the only family and you can tell me you don't care about my experience but all i can bring is my lens to this we've seen the con- like kids being confused of why they're being asked their pronouns as a parent we'd love to have that conversation of why it's important what you know why it's being asked what's happening in society that this is this is the way we're moving towards things like that and if you don't know or you don't know what your children are being taught and you don't have an opportunity to opt in that is where I think the concern is. And I, do, I think that there's a lot more people than you think that at the end of the day, love their children, want to support them. And I know you guys argue that that's not what this is about, but you've really actually, in the way that the NDP have gone about this, have victimized parents and almost as said by default, <laughs> they're not equipped to raise their own children. So first, I'm not here on behalf of the NDP. I recognize that, but I, you know more I, insights into their workings. <laughs> but, but I also, I've never said that parents shouldn't love their kids, that they shouldn't care about what's going on in their lives, that they shouldn't want to know what they're being taught in school. I think those are all very reasonable expectations. And certainly as a parent, I have those expectations myself. What we're talking about in this specific case is about kids who are at risk. So we're not talking about you, Erica. We're not talking about me as a parent. We're talking about kids that cannot be honest with their parents because they'll be hurt, because they'll be harmed, because they will have to leave their house. And that is who is protected as it stands. And that is who will not be protected if these policies move forward. And even though they're a really small portion of the population, every single one of their lives matters and their lives are put at risk if this policy is brought in. And that's what I'm worried about. All those other things are absolutely true. And in most cases, this policy won't apply. But in the few cases that it does, it really matters. And I, I hear that and I don't, like I said, I'm not here to discredit any of that, the the minority of individuals that are navigating this, but where can our resources go to solve that problem? And I think it is bringing in experts, doing having clinics specific to that. I don't think teachers should have to be the ones that are navigating this. They don't have an expertise in it. They don't have training. That's very difficult thing to have a conversation with a young person about a child that, you know, what you're always scared that you're going to say something wrong, um, uh, you know, in those types of situations. So, you know, I, I look forward to seeing how the government is going to address what what resources or supports can they give both those children and all children? But I think right now what we're seeing is um, a, a landscape where a lot of people and when you look at the polling and we'll see if it stays, but a lot of people are looking through their lens, their personal mm-hmm. lens. And I feel like we have an environment where if you say that you support these policies, you all of a sudden are, you know, a horrible person, a bigot. You, you know, I've seen I've seen the stuff on social media. There's not a lot of people that support these policies that are, are tweeting about it. But the polling suggests that there's more people that agree with this because they can all we can do is come with our own lens and the perspective that I think a lot of Albertans are coming with on this issue and where I think the mark is, the, the mark is being missed by how the NDP strategy is politicizing this is that people are parents and they see this and they can only come and all we can ask people is to come from your own view. And that's where I think we're seeing a large amount of support 
for these policies because we all are like looking through the lens of a parent and what we would do if our children were in that situation and we look at it and it's like of course we'd love and be compassionate with them and help them through this and so i think where some of the pronouns and the sexual education and um those types of policies that's that lens i don't i don't know if we'd call it parental rights when it comes to the gender reassignment or the hormone blockers um but i'll let you jump and then i just want to cover off the the sports because i know that was the last the last piece of those policies sure i mean like i completely agree I think that on both sides of this issue, the uh, conversation is highly, highly politicized and wants to put people into like pro or con boxes or right or wrong boxes. And I think that this issue is absolutely incredibly complex and it's hard to uh, it's hard to navigate where your position is or where the right side of history is on it um, for certain pieces of the policy. But um conversations where we can actually look at the facts and where we can rely on experts and where we can have real conversations and, and feel safe asking questions get us closer to having a real conversation because I completely agree it's hard to talk to anyone about this right now and it's hard to seek information on it without feeling like maybe you've uh, misstepped um, so I think opening channels to, to have real conversations about what the implications and what the risks are are a benefit to everybody. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you on that. I know both of us talked about like, you know, not wanting to use incorrect terms, being very, you know, educated on the topic, um, not wanting to offend anyone and not coming from any other place but care and compassion for this. But you are right. It is hard to talk about. I think that there's there's facts on both sides. Um, I don't know where this is going to go in the polling because it seems like a lot of people have have decided one way or the other and we're not here to to have people flip flop or or decide anything that's not authentic to them but I, I guess the biggest thing to take away from this is you know if we can do this and have these types of conversations that it is possible and to educate yourself on a lot of of what the policies mean and you know again there's a there's a the spectrum of the policies is quite robust and and yeah it's just where do we go from here because we're going to see what's going to happen in the public opinion towards it. We're going to see how the government navigates this. Um, but before we end the show today, I just want to get your thoughts on on the sports one. I think we might be ending on like maybe one of the <laughs> the, the easier topics um, or easier parts of this policy. But um, where do you see, you know, I haven't heard the NDP and I know you don't work for them, but even just like the strategy behind it, mm -hmm. um, they haven't really pointed to, you know, they obviously won't talk about some of the, the pre and post operative transition uh, transgender care that the government's looking at or like the pros potentially of this policy. Um, do you feel like from from the NDP, their strategy is just to say no to all of these policies or can they understand maybe something like the, the disadvantages of biological um, men or boys playing in, in girls sports? I think you'll see the NDP say that all of these policies are harmful with the exception of trying to recruit specialists to Alberta. And and I mean, that goes to a lot of the relationships they have with the LGBTQ community, a lot of the experiences of those people. And honestly, like the science and the uh, standards that have been set for competitive sports for trans transgender athletes at the highest level. So I think... I think you will absolutely continue to see Rachel Notley and whoever succeeds her continue to quite passionately oppose all of these policies with, like I said, the exception of, I think we can all agree we would benefit from having more specialists and more care in Alberta. 
So how do you think they're going to navigate um, the fact that like the world athletics has come out? They recognize that going forward, there will be a, an open category. I'm not I'm not quite sure, but they're that they will no longer allow um, biological men to to compete in women's sport of that level. And so that includes the world uh, para athletics. I know that Dr. Linda Blade, uh, president of the Alberta Athletics, has spoken quite uh, widely about um, this topic. And I know the government said that they're going to be working with those stakeholders to navigate. But how do you see if this is the experts within that field? Um, how do you see the NDP if they're going off of this science and, and relying on experts that they can say that this policy and approach um, that has a lot of evidence supporting the, the biological disadvantages and that women are actually disadvantaged by by um, having men be able to compete in their sports? How do you think they're going to be able to justify that? Well, I think it's it's pretty easily justifiable. I mean, there's kind of two things we're talking about here. One is like competitive absolutely top level competitive sport, which I think is in a different category, not on this policy, but on all policies in terms of eligibility. Um, but then we're talking about recreational sport between kids. And in that case, like, I just don't think any of this is necessary. Like, like it doesn't, I don't think that any kid that wants to play with their peers should have to defend their gender or their place in society before they're allowed to play with them. So let's just start there. I don't wanna like, when we talk about creating other leagues for transgender individuals, that just segregates them that just makes them other and that just continues a false narrative that their very being is somehow malicious and then if we want to talk about the very upper levels of competitive sport i think we should look to the olympics that has said that no matter your gender identity it will not discriminate you and has laid out very specific guidelines in terms of testosterone levels over the course of the year before competition to allow transgender athletes to participate and has said outside of that, no one has to disclose and all uh, male athletes that have transitioned to female will be eligible to participate at the Olympic level. So, I mean, if it's good enough for the Olympics, I, I, I mean, they're basing it completely on science and experts and academic backing. And I think that we should look to them at, in competitive cases for guidance. But we don't measure testosterone levels in junior high and high school students. So yeah, I guess I'm looking at we. it, but the, the, the safety of it, I think is where some parents are concerned. And that is around um, the fact that uh, I, I, like I'm quite a strong individual. I, I don't believe that a third, or let's just take some example, a 16 year old girl that could be very strong um, playing basketball, a contact sport, playing against a 16 year old boy that's now is in transition and identifies as a, as a female, but is a biological male. How do you explain that that's like safe? There's a lot of strength. There's a lot of, it's been proven. So I guess my question is, how do you say that that's not putting the female at risk of being injured? I just... I just think this is such a false narrative that anyone who who decides to transition is risking the the safety and security of the people around them. Uh, like in basketball, for example, or any sport, there will always be women who are much different sizes and weights. But and that's very different. That is very different. Than there will a always be people who play rougher, and that is exactly why we have rules in sport. That's exactly why we have referees. There will always be a difference between size. And but there's, I've played there's sports my whole life. There's tiny women and there's giant women and there will always be a mismatch in terms of their strength. Right, but I think that the argument is that 
science has proven that males are physically stronger than females. Therefore, a female versus a male, the female is majority of the time not as strong as the male. At the same age, same everything. And I think the argument is, is that who you make this policy and then who else are you then as a result of that policy disadvantaging? And I think that's the argument. But who cares? It's a junior high sport. Me that cares like kid. parents that have kids that get hurt in this. No, but we're not kids that like, don't get their scholarships. Are we talking about kids in, ju- kids in junior high basketball, junior high? Okay. Like I'm, I'm just saying in most cases, I weren't like if we're talking about competitive, the, let's look to the Olympics as the standard to set. If we're talking about recreational sports, like, are we really going to say we don't want you to identify as your authentic self or be a part of this community or be treated like a woman because that we might not win our recreational game that way? Like, I, just I, don't, I don't think, think I think for parents, like, f- I think it's more about the safety because of the clear strength versus the the winning and getting the trophy. But I do think mm-hmm. that there is like when you get farther down the line, scholarships, um, mm-hmm. you know, things that would maybe disadvantage you. We've seen it in swimming. We've seen it in Olympic lifting. And I get that that's not the Olympics nor these athletic sports. I think where it comes to is, again, the force and strength that these individuals have and the concern that someone is going to get hurt. And, and I do think there's sports, again, those are contact. I've seen in the, the trail running community, they'll have an open category. And I mean, this is a field where men and women and everyone runs at the same time. Um, so I do think that there's ways in sports to make it so that it is not an alienation of any individual or making an individual that's um, part of a minority group feel different. But I do think you've got to look at the whole scope of all the people impacted and address it accordingly. You know, we didn't spend a lot of time touching on the politics of this, but we have covered the policy. I think we shared the politics. (laughs) In in quite a bit of detail. And perhaps we have uh, communicated the politics through our tone and uh, and wording on each side of the the conversation today. Um, But I think, um, you know, for those who have really engaged with this topic and been sending in information or points of view or articles, I'm happy to keep receiving those. And uh, watch for us, like we said, new time every Thursday morning at 5 a.m or you can find us uh, on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Discourse is hosted by Cheryl Oates and Erica Baroudis. Follow on Instagram at The Discourse Pod. Subscribe to The Discourse on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts.